Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on the rundown. Welcome, everyone, to episode 36 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a Rust Belt recruiting production. I'm your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Rosalind Corto, Director of Workforce Innovation at Towards Employment. Rosalind, thanks so much for joining. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited, Paul. Um, well, you are uh, a person after my own heart. I love New York City, so we're going to start there. Uh, you've had a fascinating Great. career spanning across uh, different industries and different cities. So let's start with your time in New York. Uh, first, working for the city of New York. Talk to us about the the different roles that you held for them. Sure. So that was definitely it was about 30 years ago. Uh, so it was early in my career, but not the beginning of my career. But for the city of New York, I uh, I had three different roles. I worked uh, in the mayor's office of SRO housing, and uh, that stands for single room occupancy. And that's really uh, the, the most important housing stock New York City has left for affordable housing for homeless individuals and families. And so in, in that position, I really oversaw in, uh, inspectors from the Department of Buildings and the Health Department to make sure that this was safe housing stock. Um, then after that, I moved over to the Department of uh, Housing Preservation and Development, where I was an assistant commissioner. Um, that job was developing housing. So New York City obviously would be the largest municipal affordable housing developer in the country by, by, by a lot. And so in that job, I was coordinating project financing. Um, and then after that, I had the best job you can have in New York City government. I was the uh, assistant director of the um, New York City Sports Commission. And I challenge anybody to have a better first week at their job. In that first week, I got to go to two World Series games, and then I got to host a private breakfast for the World Championship, uh, World Champion Yankees at Gracie Mansion. And if all of that was not enough, I got to be on a float on a ticker tape parade with the New York Yankees. Best first week ever at a job. How do you how do you ever leave that job? That's a that's a great gig. <laughs> I know, but you know, life changes, and uh, you know, I got the entrepreneurial bug after that, and and decided that uh, I wanted to have my own law firm. I think is what really happened. But it was a uh, was a great job. So, how do you transition from the housing aspect of working with the city to then the sports commission? And for people that don't know, I mean, we've had uh, guests on from the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission, but um, just you can quickly explain what a commission does. Well, I mean. You know, different cities have sports commissions focus on different things. Well, in New York, originally, it was set up to try to attract uh, the Olympics, and they were not successful in that. But, um, you know, it really is to promote uh, both amateur and professional sports within the uh, five boroughs of New York City. Um, and to be honest, it was a transition. I had run the gay games in New York and gotten to know very well the head of the parks department. She moved over to the sports commission and invited me to join. I mean, that's the way most of those, uh, you know, best first week jobs ever are. Yeah. 
that's uh, that's yeah. fantastic. And I've uh, you know, and I've always been a sports fan, so it, you know, it was just it was it was a fabulous experience. It really was. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, yeah. so then you get your law degree from St. John's. Launch your own general practice. Um, so I guess two questions: like, was that always in the plan, and what was the motivating factor behind that shift? Yeah. Well, I guess my resume, my resume must not be clear enough. I was already a lawyer, so uh, I graduated okay. really. Uh, I graduated uh, high school at 16, college at 19. I was practicing law at 22. Always wanted to be a lawyer. I worked in-house uh, at a consumer products company, an international company, and I just I didn't dig it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't who I was. The idea of helping a a conglomerate make more money selling more soap. For example, it just I couldn't imagine doing that for 50 for 50 years. Right. Like it just it didn't it didn't do it for me. And so um, when I was able to get into the city roles and really see the different types of things that I could do, I realized that it was a great opportunity to kind of see if I had that entrepreneurial bug that my father had and a very good friend of mine. Uh, bless her heart. She called me and she said, I can give you a free office space, free phone system usage. I can give you some clients. She was a realtor and a managing agent. And she said, let me help you start out and then you can take it over. And that's basically what happened. Uh, she's uh, obviously a great friend now, but she was always a really uh, close friend. And for me, I really wanted to run uh, a law firm that replicated what it was like in a small town. Right. And so what that meant for me was finding clients that I could work with, like throughout their life cycles, whether they were wanted to get wills, adopt a child, have babies, get, uh, you know, buy a house, uh, you know, just to always be there uh, for the new new parts of their life cycle and 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 be, you know, be real advisors and counsels to individuals. And then I expanded into the nonprofit world there, too. So I had a number of nonprofit uh, clients that I was of counsel for, and I did everything for them. So I would set up the 501c3. I would help them with their mission, vision, values. I would set up their HR policies, do their litigation. So I really liked the variety, uh, and I liked part of my practice being mission-based, something where I knew I was making a difference. So you know, it was a real opportunity for me to use the law and make the world a better place at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're seeing now how uh, important the law is to making uh, a big difference. So what, what, um, what, what's one of the biggest misconceptions around not necessarily running your own practice, but, but being a lawyer, like what, what's one of the biggest misconceptions? I feel like you know, uh, so many people growing up were like, you know, you'd be a doctor or a lawyer. Like, those are always the sure. first two that people say. Right? What's one of the biggest things that people would have no idea or, or just a general misconception? Well, everybody thinks lawyers are great writers. Hmm. I can tell you, uh, heretofore, from <laughs> now on, not true. <laughs> it is not true. Yep. Uh, some lawyers are good writers, but not all lawyers. But, uh, I, you know, I think that it's a very romantic thing. It was for me. I, I don't know. You look much younger than me. There was a movie back in the day called The Paper Chase. It took mm -hmm. place at Harvard Law School. And, you know, it was you were going to be heady and, you know, think about constitutional law and, 
you know, in the everyday grind of law, that's not what it is, right? It's filling out forms, it's writing motions, it's, you know, explaining to clients, it's negotiating with other lawyers, it's kowtowing to judges, right? There's, there's a lot in it that is far from romantic. And for me, what I found was I didn't like the law as much as I liked the business part of it, hmm. right? As much as, you know, making rain, finding clients, uh, you know, having a growth strategy, things like that. I really liked that part of it much more than the ins and the outs of real estate law or state practice. I would say the only time that was different was when I was doing a lot of uh, gay and lesbian family law before the world caught up. So before there was marriage so that you had to protect your relationships and your children from those relationships. But other than that kind of five or six year period, you know, I, I, I preferred the business aspect to the legal. Got it. Interesting. Okay. So they're not all good writers. That's good to know. I'll remember. That. Not all good writers. I, everybody thinks, oh, it's a lawyer. I mean, that's how I got into the nonprofit sector. I'd never worked in the nonprofit sector and there was a job opening for a grant writer and the guy who hired me just thought, oh, she's a lawyer and we're going to get a great writer. Well, she, he got lucky because I'm an okay writer, but it was a big assumption. I love it. That's awesome. Um, okay, so then you make another pretty big move, both job-wise, location-wise. You go from uh, you know the East Coast to the Midwest, New York City to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. uh, you become the executive director of ESOP. And so for people that don't know, tell us what, what sure. ESOP is and, and what they do. Sure. So ESOP uh, stands for Empowering and Strengthening Ohio's People. Um, and uh, before I was there, it had been a uh, pretty well-known community organizing agency here in uh, Cleveland. Uh, we're very active and activists uh, during the foreclosure crisis and became the state's largest foreclosure prevention agency. When I stepped in, the founding executive, executive director was retiring and they really wanted uh, you know, somebody who would come in and, and kind of create a new path and, and you know, something that was in line with our mission and vision, but maybe was an expansion. And so we really looked around at what we did well and where there was a lot of need. And what we determined was uh, financial education for older adults uh, was really not something being done. And so we created a really innovative suite of financial education um, training for older adults to really help them stay in their communities as long as possible and age in place safely. And so we were able to, you know, kind of mix some of the work we were doing in foreclosure prevention, which had to do with financial education and, uh, you know, transfer that to older adults. So we still did foreclosure prevention and home buying and all of that but we really expanded into this older adult world and then ended up merging with the Benjamin Rose Institute on Aging, one of the oldest uh, and largest nonprofits here in town. So that was, uh, that was a pretty interesting time being part of a, uh, of a merger. So you mentioned the foreclosure. What else was the training focused on? Was it on you know, retirement, how to manage your money post that? Like what, what yeah. was that the focus? Yeah, absolutely. How to how to fix your credit score, how to, you know, anything from, you know, learning about compound interest and, you know, what you can when and when to take Social Security. For example, mm -hmm. people take Social Security because they, they need it 
at you know at 63, but if they could wait till they're 67, the you know they could almost double their social security in, in some points. So we would help people with can you work for a few hours a week so that you can hold off on your social security, which will change your retirement extensively. We would you know help them think about downsizing and how to create. It's hard in these old houses to create uh, friendly you know universal design elements so that it was safer to be able to get up up and down the stairs and then out of bathrooms, things like that. Yep, yep, got it. Okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah. So shifting gears a little bit here, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, you've had uh, an extremely interesting career. You've, you've worked across industries. Um, what would you recommend to recent graduates in terms of their career paths? Because it's, it is told to us, uh, and I'm not a recent yeah. graduate, but I'm close enough to, right. to I'll, I'll try to relate. Um, okay. You know, it's told to us that, hey, you know, you, you pick a career path, it's very linear, you work your way up the ladder, and, you know, very quickly you, you learn. That can be the case, but it's for, sure. it's for the, uh, the minority. It is for the, the 5 10% of people that you know, stay at a stay at a company for more than 10 years now, or even stay in an right. industry for more than 10 years. So what would you recommend to graduates that may have heard that for four years, and they're joining a, a pretty crazy, a good time, some would say, sure. pretty crazy labor market? Sure. I mean, I think, for me, I, I did the exact opposite of the kind of linear approach, right? I mean, I never, th even right before this job I have now, I helped um, a, a uh, charter school network set up remote learning centers during COVID for their kids, right? Who would ever have thought that I, I would do that? And it's because I have always been willing to stay open to whatever the possibilities are. I mean, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I must have been eight years old, right? 12 years old. And, I, you know, it's so presumptuous to think that when you're 12, 16, even 21, that you're going to know who you are later and what you want to be or what the world even has to offer because we only know the world through our own prisons, right? And so I think the two things I would say is one, absolutely follow your passions when you're young before you have kids and a mortgage and credit card. And it is so challenging. And so that's the first thing I would say. Go ahead and do it. Do the weird thing that you think is never going to work. And then the other thing, be open and flexible and say yes as much as you can to different opportunities. You know, I honestly thought I was going to be a criminal lawyer or a constitutional lawyer, but instead I've gotten to, uh, you know, I've gotten to speak in front of a stadium of 80,000 people in the Netherlands. I've gotten, you know, I've gotten to ride on a float with the New York Yankees, right? I'm living in Cleveland. I, I had eight windows overlooking the lake for the first year I lived here and when I lived in downtown Cleveland, right? I mean, you just don't know. I met my wife on a trip to Alaska that I was not interested in going on, but I went with six men from Cleveland who, invite, you know, who invited me to visit a, a mutual friend. So if you don't open yourself up, to all of these things. And if you start with no, which by the way, when you get older, you start with no way more often, <laughs> right? So, you know, so I would, I would just say, you know, 
take in every experience and see what happens. I mean, I spent uh, six weeks in the Israeli army. Never did I think I would do that, right? And, you know, it was, it was a program to, it was an economic program for, for, for Israel. But for me, it was a life-changing experience for six weeks. And it would have been really easy to say no. Yep. Right? So. Yeah, that's such an important message to just say yes, right? And, and it could be uh, you get introduced to your next business relationship, a personal relationship, another opportunity, an investment opportunity. You know, it could be anything. Um, right. And I, and I think the generations now, you know, millennial and Gen Z, you know, yeah. we're, we're job hoppers. Um, yeah. But, I, but, you know, I think that's a lazy take on it. You know, and I think in your 20s, to your point, it's advantageous for everyone to take that next job, not only because you're going to get new experience or you're changing industry or whatever, but they 99% of the time they're paying you more. So it's it's the quick way, right. you know, to continue to make more money. Um, and I think that, you know, you 30 years ago flipped on its head, right? I mean, even, even in yeah. the, all the way up into the 90s, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I'm I'm going off of knowledge from you know my uh, elders. Uh, you know, right. there was still the idea that you could work for a company and get your golden Rolex and retire. Um, yeah. Quickly, I think is about oh one oh two. The internet eviscerated that idea. Yeah, I I, th I think you're right. I also think though that it's still complicated because you still have people in some HR departments that are like me. I'm a I'm a baby boomer cusper. I'm a Gen X uh, baby boomer cusper that I interviewed for jobs a couple of years ago. And, you know, people were saying to me, oh, look at all these jobs you had. Look at all these jobs I've had. I've been working for 35 years. Yeah. Right? I was so, supposed to have a lot of jobs. Like, you know. Right. And right. And four of them were promotions within the city of New York, for God's sakes. So, I mean, I still think you have to manage that. And I, I, I've never been one to chase money. Right. So. I understand changing jobs while you're figuring out what you like and also what you're good at, right? Sometimes what you like and what you right? Like, hey, wouldn't it be great if I could play Major League Baseball? I see a few problems with it. I like it. I'm just not good at it, right? But so, I mean, I, you know, I think it's it, 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 just say yes as much as you can and, and, and don't put yourself in a box. We put ourselves in boxes before other people put us in boxes. 100%. Right? 100%. And so I think that's what's really important to to not decide who you are when you're in your first your first 20, right? Yeah. You, you got you got a lot of 20s left. Yeah, I, I say I agree with you in the beginning of your career, you chase your passion, even if that changes. But then I would say, you know, maybe maybe right now, right? So I'm I'm uh, 32, um, been working for 12 years. And now I'm all about chasing what I'm good at, you know, and right. and I'm I'm probably better at it than I am super passionate about it. But as long as there's mm -hmm. a good mix in there that allows right. you to maybe chase your passion on the side, your true, you know, whether it's like playing the guitar or, you know, baseball, whatever it is, um, you know, there's there's a really good uh, like Gary V quote that he says, you know, the ROI of a basketball for me is zero, but the ROI for a basketball for LeBron James is a billion dollars, right? So right, right. find your ROI, what you're good at and what you're, right. and, and try and mix them. Um, and I agree that probably happens after a couple jobs. 
Yeah, I mean, I got the opportunity really early in my career uh, to mix my passion with my talent, and it was an accident. It was beyond an accident, right? I had a friend call me up and say, let's go play softball at the gay games in Vancouver. This was 1990. I'm like, what are the gay games? Where's Vancouver? And why? Right? And they got me there. I had the absolute 10 best days of my life, changed everything about everything. Um, On the closing ceremonies, they announced the next gay games are in four years in New York. I was so disconnected. I didn't know. My friends were on the committee that brought it. And I didn't know. And one of them calls me up and says, we need a woman on the sports uh, committee, volunteer. Uh, I don't want to volunteer from, I'm volunteer for so many things. Please just volunteer. We don't have a woman and we have to have both gender co-chairs. Okay. I go to a meeting. Then they say to me, oh, now you have to go to the meeting of all the captains of all these committees. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I, you know, I go, I have a huge fight with the president of the board, I walk out. He chases me down the streets of the West Village. And I'm like, oh my God, he's a crazy man, right? He's literally chasing me. And he's chasing me. And he says, you can't quit. I I know we don't agree on anything. I can see that, but you've got to stay involved. And then, you know, and then it became, you know, he became the executive director and he calls me, he says, it's, we don't have enough money to start with new with somebody. You need to quit your job and become our director of operations. I'm like, I don't know anything about running a multi-sports festival. He said, then you're perfect, right? And it turned out I knew how to do budgeting and business plans, and I could organize, you know, 37 sports for 15,000 people at 80-something events. Who knew? I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which led to me being the head of the International Federation of Gay Games, which led to the opportunity to speak in front of a crowd of 80,000 people to negotiate with the mayor of Amsterdam, which, you know, all ended up with how I ended up in Alaska, meeting my wife with the people from Cleveland to then come move to Cleveland and then get back into the nonprofit sector and leave my law license behind, right? Like, it goes on and on and on. One decision. Yeah opens everything up, yep. you know? And it's it's so hard to see where that little decision, right? At the time, it was like, ah, I'm volunteering, I don't know. And then, boom, right? So it's hard to see. And so I think, yep. again, wrapping, wrapping like this question up, just say yes, you know? Because you can always say no after you say yes. Say yes, see what it's about. If you don't like it, fine. But at least you know, right? At least right. you know you tried, you tried it. But- and I also think it sets you up to not be fear-based. Yes. Right? Nope. No usually comes from fear. Yes. I don't know what it's going to be. What if it sucks? What if it's not as good as where I am? What? Well, but what if it's always... great? What if it's perfect? Yeah, right? You have to right. fix your brain. you got to make room for great. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, that was really the ultimate, where my passion and what I was good at for a couple of years was just, it was my entire life couple of years and uh, I would never, I can't imagine who I would be in the world if I had said no to that, yep. right? Or if I had run for faster when being chased down the streets of New York. Yeah. So Yeah, what if you got away? What if you ran faster? Yeah. <laughs> right? God made me fast for a reason. That's all, it all comes back. <laughs> it all comes back. Um, okay, so let's, let's jump into um, 
towards employment. You know, it's Great. it's such an important part of the workforce ecosystem. And I want you to yeah. highlight some of your your more successful partnerships, right? Whether that's with government or an individual employer, and then you know why it worked, why it worked so well. Yeah, I mean, I, I might be a little bit stubborn here and say that you know, no successful nonprofit that's been around for 46 years impacting so many thousands of people could do it alone. And in a place like Cleveland, like Cleveland, it's it, there's so many partnerships that to pick one would would minimize it. So rather, I'd like to say, like, we have to work with other community organizations, right? So whether it's uh, YOU, Youth Opportunities Unlimited for 18 to 24 year olds, whether it's CHN, uh, you know, Cleveland Housing Partners, getting people uh, in homes, whether we're working with uh, drug rehabs to get people to send people to us, community development agencies, right? So in that one, you have to have a lot of partners, uh, local, state, federal government jails and prisons, right? That's where we're reaching people to try and help them get a second chance. So government funds so much of what we do. Funders in general, foundations, yeah. if you, right? You have to have a symbiotic relationship where, you know, you're more than just receiving money, right? Where you're active partners, where you're, you know, you're giving them data to help them help other people, right? Um, what else? Industry, Magnet is a big partner, in, right, with us, with sector partnerships, with our industry partnership work. Um, health, the health, healthcare industry, manufacturers who hire our participants. These are all, you know, deep partnerships that have been built over the years. And I think UH as a hospital is a great example. We worked with them for a really long time and created a robust program where we were able to source talent and train them with UH so that folks had career opportunities that would have been otherwise closed to them. So I would say 90% of our work gets, doesn't get done without partnerships. It's yeah. everything. Yeah, I love it. That's, that's well said. And it, and it spans across, uh, you know, an entire city. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Talk to us about some of the, the barriers to employment that you're seeing in the last two years or so. Um, you know, it could be transportation, it could be, you know, we've heard internet access before, but what are some of the barriers to employment that you've seen and, and how you guys have helped try to reduce those? Right. I mean, there's so many. So let's, we could start with uh, people with uh, previous uh, involvement in the criminal justice system. There are so many collateral sanctions that are ne not necessarily related to their individual crimes that prevent them from being able to work. Uh, you can't really work in a hospital if you uh, have been previously incarcerated, for example. Banks, um, you know, so there, there's a lot of collateral sanctions and restrictions. Um, so we have two lawyers uh, that will help uh, folks who, who qualify to get their records expunged, for example, so that they have more opportunity. A lot of uh, formerly incarcerated people lose their driver's licenses because of fees that mounted up. And we have, so our lawyers will help with that. Uh, you mentioned technology. Technology is huge. We're seeing the real gap. And it's not only in uh, people, you know, you know, struggling to make ends meet that don't have computers. They don't know how to use computers because they weren't provided with the opportunities to learn. 
So there's a really big technology gap. And I think Cleveland is one of the, has one of the largest problems for a city our size in the country. So that, that you know, in a world that went hybrid, right? Yeah. That is really, really hard. So we got, we have some terrific funders who came forward and we were able to, you know, to give away a lot of um, technology, a lot of equipment so that people could take our classes from home where they could remain safe. Uh, daycare, you know, yeah, a lot of essential care. workers, right? A lot of essential workers um, had to go to work and didn't have anybody watching their, their children. So, I mean, the challenges are beyond just housing insecurity and food insecurity. We have people, we get jobs who can't afford to get steel-toed boots to start in a manufacturer, mm. right? I mean, I remember when I had my first job as a lawyer, I didn't get paid for six weeks. My mother had to help me pay my rent. My mother had to help me go out and buy fancy clothes at the time because I needed those to go to court, right? So if people don't have social capital and are struggling to make ends meet, and that's what all their friends and family have, these, these are insurmountable for getting to work. A lot of the people we work with can't afford cars. I mean, nobody can afford cars right now except for the top 1%, it's right? Unbelievable. So, how, right? How do you, you know, how do you get to work on time? Um, you know, taking. We think about it, uh, like to get from my. I live in uh, the uh, near West Side. I live in Ohio City. Takes me 15 minutes in my car to jump on the on the shoreway to go to the food bank. Okay, 10, 15 minutes from here. I think I have to have to take six buses to get there. And what if I had to do that and pick up two of my three kids at this school and another kid got, you know, is not feeling well over here, right? These are really hard things to maneuver and the systems don't, aren't set up to accommodate that, right? So the system's like, oh, you missed your appointment, so your utilities are going to be shut off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, right? uh, we, we built cities and, and, you know, this understandably so but we built cities for cars and yeah you know we are now i think rethinking that a little um but for a lot of cities you know it's it's too little too late right like the automobile is not going anywhere we're always going to be using cars uh you know right. the cities that were forward thinking and invested in public transit 30 to all 100 years ago will yeah. always have a leg up you know, you know, yeah. New York City is a good example. I'm not saying it's the best or the cleanest or the safest, as we've seen, but it's the most expensive. Yeah. You can get anywhere you want. And, you know, there are delays and I, I get it. I live there. It was not the best. I've been in many of those, many yes. of those delays. But, you know, yeah. it's it is a advantage. It is a competitive advantage for people, you know, debating, okay, you know, where am I going to live or how am I going to get there? Yeah. You know, if you have a good public transit system or not. Well, these last 10 years are the first time in my career I ever drove to work. I never drove to work. Like my friends who I, I sometimes look at their cars, I'm like, what do you have? Five changes of clothes in here? Three meals? Like, like when was the last time you cleaned out your, like your life is in here. In and I never had that. I had to put everything in a backpack, get on the subway, get on Jersey Transit, get on the PATH train, yeah. right? You had to have what you needed for the day. You know, it was just 100%. a different world. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. 
Um, okay, last question, and then we'll get you out of here. Talk to us about the mission of Achieve Staffing and how you're aiming to help companies on that front. Absolutely. So Achieve Staffing is Towards Employment's uh, latest social enterprise. It's a, it's a non-for-profit staffing agency that basically uh, couples traditional staffing with um, post-placement, pre and post-placement supports. So I like to think of it as what if a staffing agency and towards employment had a baby? That's, that's, that's what Achieve okay. is. Um, we got a, uh, a three-year innovation grant from the county, from Cuyahoga County, to try and set up an alternative staffing organization that could be self-sustaining and that could put people with, uh, that were formerly incarcerated or criminal justice involvement in their past uh, into jobs that lead to careers, right? So, you know, not everybody can get the career job right now. You have to start somewhere. And so in addition to what staffing agencies do in, in sourcing talent, we will work with our, uh, we call them achievers. We'll work with our achievers, get them, you know, not only how to do a resume or fix their resume, but how to approach questions about their background and how to take maybe their limited experience and show how their skills are transferable uh, in an interview, which is not that much different than a traditional staffing agency, but then, okay, now you've got the job. Well, do, we need to get you steel-toed boots. We need to make sure you can, you know, you have bus pass or you need an Uber. Um, we, will, we will do post-placement uh, post uh, coaching support. So how to navigate a supervisor you don't get along with or how to manage that's, conflict. That's helpful or, for everybody right there, yeah. Right? Um, you know, you got to get to work in time. And if this employer says getting to work on time is 20 minutes early, and you got to get there 20 minutes early yep. and, you know, we'll help, you know, I think some of the strangest, the strangest support we ever gave anybody is we placed somebody on a nine month um, outdoor gig uh, watering trees throughout, uh, throughout Cleveland. It was 110 degrees and then he's coming home to an apartment where it's like 120 inside, right? So you tell me what staffing agency is going to go out and buy him an air conditioner so that he can complete his nine month placement, right? So, you know, these are the kinds of, of supports that we're doing to ensure that someone can be a success. And then, so on the company side, we are working with employers who either already are second chance employers willing to work with people with backgrounds, um, or we will work with companies to help them get there, right? So we will help them navigate what the perceived risk is, explain that the risk isn't, uh, you know, isn't necessarily what they think it is. We can talk to their in-house lawyers. We can develop a matrix for them that, for example, will say, we're not comfortable yet with hiring somebody that maybe has a felony or a violent felony or a sexual crime, but we're willing to work with everybody else. Or we're willing to work with anybody as long as there were no crimes in the last 10 years, right? So we have to figure out what's most comfortable uh, for the culture and an organization. And then we can also be consulted to make sure that the culture is, in, is inviting and accepting once you bring more diverse people into an organization. And so Achieve also helps companies reach their uh, diversity and inclusion goals. We can work with them on that. 
uh, a lot, all of our work is really got racial equity at its core, right? To try and break down the systemic barriers that are there and, you know, to work with individual companies to make sure that they're not just taking a body and running them through and moving them out. How can we make sure that the achiever is successful and the employer is successful? And right now, talent, there's such a shortage of talent in Northeast Ohio. And there is all of this untapped talent that so many companies are afraid of, of going near. And survey after survey, study after study proves that if you hire a person with a background, you're going to have somebody who is motivated, hardworking, and committed because you gave them a second chance. Yep, 100%. I love it. Well, Rosalind, this was great. We appreciate you coming on. We're going to get you out of here with this. Um, I know you're you're still somewhat new to Cleveland. You've been there a little while now. But uh, yep. what are your favorite restaurants, go-to spots? Um, could be sure. anywhere in the city. What are your What are your spots? Yeah, well, I'm all about where can I walk to, right? Yeah. Where can I walk to? I live in Ohio City, so my choices are endless. I do wish I liked beer. It would be a better place to live if I liked beer. Yep. But I would say going to a uh, Hex, walking two blocks to Hex if I'm in the mood for a burger, uh, uh, Banana Blossom if I want some Thai food, or Nate's right on West 25th if I'm looking for some good Mediterranean Lebanese cuisine. So nice. that's what, nothing where you got to get dressed up. Just uh, really, you know, community-oriented local fare that's really good. Love it. Awesome. Well, this was great. We appreciate you coming on. We obviously wish you the best of luck this year. I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. And uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate again. the opportunity, Paul. Yeah, of Absolutely. course. Thanks, Ross. All right. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.